listening to First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. Oh, come on now. Praise the Lord, everyone. I, I don't know what kind of week you've had. Hopefully it's been great. Hopefully everything has worked out just as you wanted it. But even if it was a hot mess, anybody have a hot mess of a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah I got a big amen from somebody back there. Uh, we got another one from up here. That's right. You guys are going through it right now. Our prayers are with you, though, my brother. Whatever kind of a week you had, when you come into the presence of God and you put a song in your spirit, I, I don't mean you just clap along. You know what I mean? Now, I know how to clap along. I've done it on more than a handful of services where I wasn't really there. I was doing my Christmas list, you know. But if you let the song get in your spirit, you, you don't just do worship. You don't just do praise. Then you become praise. You become worship. I, I don't have a good way to describe it, but I promise you, the difference is profound. And it's, the, it's really the only way to come into the house of the Lord. It's like when they went to temple in the Old Testament, they didn't wait until they got to the temple to start singing. They had songs all along the way, and they called them songs of ascension because most of them lived in lower elevations than where Jerusalem sat in the mountains. The mountains surround Jerusalem. But as they ascended toward that place of worship, they sang songs of ascension. So imagine leaving your house in the morning, and when you get to the first road, you say, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be a real good day. I can tell this is a new idea for some of you. That's all right. I'm going to edumacate you here. And then when you get to the first main road, you pick up the beat a little bit. And you say, God's been good all the time, all the time. And by the time you get into the church parking lot, all of you joining us online, thank you for joining us. I pray you're having a great holiday season. Don't let it rush past. Don't isolate yourself. Connect with others. Open your heart. And can the church say amen? amen. One of my favorite preachers of the 19th century was a man by the name of Philip Brooks. Now, we have our own Philip Brooks, and I'm sure he's a pretty good preacher, too. Uh, but one of my favorite preachers of the 19th century was a, name, a man by the name of Phillips Brooks. Uh, he wrote a hymn, a Christmas hymn, that you all know. You just don't know who wrote it. And so I will give it to you today so you can nod along. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And then my favorite line of the whole song. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I don't, know, I don't know his personality, but uh, if I had written that line right there, I'd have written the hopes and fears of all the years, and I'd have said, my God, somebody needs to give me an amen in here. 
the hopes and fears of all the years are met. Somebody say met. All of history focuses upon this moment in which hope is born. A solution for sin is given. I'm preaching for a little while here today this subject, Bethlehem, we have a problem. <laughs> Bethlehem, we have a problem. Uh, when I was a teenager, a quite, quite excellent book was written by an author by the name of Robert Fulgham. If, if you're unfamiliar with Robert Fulgham and you love creative writing in uh, kind of the art of the essay, then I would highly recommend you discover the writing of Robert Fulgham. And I'm a little bit jealous. I wish that I could discover him um, for the first time. Uh, he wrote a book entitled Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And uh, here's some of the chapters. And immediately when I say these things, you'll think of people who did not learn these lessons in kindergarten. And you'll wish they had. Number one, share. <laughs> share already. <laughs> Number two, play fair. Number three, don't hit people. Now, now elbow your neighbor and say, see, that was for you. <laughs> don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. My God. My God. Mm, let it be. Let it be. Don't take things that aren't yours. <laughs> Say you're sorry when you hurry. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. That's some good lessons you can apply to your life. Now, when I was an evangelist, I stole the idea because all evangelists steal. And I preached a message entitled Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Sunday School. I was not the only one to preach this message. I stole it from others, others stole it from me, and the beat goes on. A good idea stands on its own two feet. <laughs> And so I preached this message, everything I needed to learn, I learned in Sunday school, and I thought of all the songs that we learned in Sunday school, and I put them in a list of things you need to know. Here goes number one. Father Abraham had many sons, that would be me, many sons had Father Abraham, y'all, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot. Turn around, put your booty on the ground. I know they didn't, don't like, no, no, no. You, that's, that's how all us boys sing it. I don't care what y'all said. That's some first kids right there. That's how we sing it. And all y'all righteous people, y'all just need to take a breath. A breath mint. Um, other songs that we uh, learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Everything I need to know I learned in Sunday school. How about this one? Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Some of y'all need to know that. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. 
That's good. Y'all like that? Y'all like that? I worked on that. Took a cut. I'm not that coordinated. I had to work on that one for a while. Uh, <laughs> so, so there's a t style of teaching, and that's why I'm having fun with this. There's a style of teaching where you, you take something that uh, perhaps you know, perhaps you don't know it, but then you use that kind of as a teaching set. It's like the lesson is within the structure. Now, the Lord, the Lord teaches this way, and I, you've all heard me uh, say this before. When God wants to teach spiritual truth, he tells you a story. Yeah. Now, we all of us as Bible students, we, we try to derive, derive from story understanding, and so we will, as it were, put together a type of almost a formula of sorts where we put this scripture upon this scripture and this precept upon this precept. Uh, that, that's not wrong, and it is helpful for us. Us to organize what we know, to put it together, to rightly divide it. We call that a systematic theology. But you would need to be reminded that is not how God gives a spiritual lesson. When God wants to impart something to you with the potential to change everything in your life, he's not going to give you a type of theological calculus. He's not going to give you a checklist. What he's going to do is he's going to give you a story. And everything you need to know is going to be somehow woven and threaded through that story. Yeah. And so since I'm preaching Bethlehem, we have a problem. I want to tell you some stories. First of all, let me tell you about a family that is traveling in the Near East. And... They're trying to move from one part of the land back to Canaan. And as they're traveling, they misjudge the timing of their journey. Uh, I think it's helpful for all of us to recognize that timing matters, and we all of us get timing wrong sometimes. And you have to go clean up a mess because your timing was 100% off. Can I have an amen from church for it? They misjudged their timing, and they had no intention to have a baby in the middle of a road trip. It's a bad idea to give birth in a road trip. I've never given birth, but I still feel strong about this. Don't have a baby in a car. Organize yourself. Plan yourself. It's going to be problematic enough without traffic. And so uh, they are on this journey, and they've misjudged this journey. And the woman, the mother, goes into labor as they're traveling. And once labor starts, uh, that baby does not care what you have planned. That baby has his own time clock coming, and you can deal with it because it ain't changing for you. <laughs> And so the husband, the leader of the family, he decides uh, we, have to, we have to make a change. We're not going to make it to Canaan. This is going to happen in the here and now. And so he begins to try to make arrangements for this. He, he begins to sort this out. And uh, they find a place. They find out where they are. A little place that's never been mentioned, never been mentioned in story, never been mentioned in song. It's just a place on the way. Who would have ever thought that we would be here in this place when the child came? And so uh, Rachel is in uh, great pain, and Jacob is finding a place 
for his wife to give birth. And Rachel's never had very much, very much success in her uh, reproductive abilities, and it has always been a difficulty for her. And it isn't long before they realize that this, uh, this birth is going to go hard, it's going to go badly, and it does. Uh, Rachel is broken by the birth. Uh, she, at some point, knows she is going to die. She knows there's nothing else for her to be done. She had not wanted to die like this. Try to put yourself in the, in the, in the circumstance of someone uh, living uh, in a much more, much more difficult time. We moderns, we're so insulated by our, our health insurance and our hot water and our conditioned air, and we're so, so conditioned to being able to dial 911 and somebody show up to help us that we somehow allow ourselves to think that we are in fundamental ways different than these people, but we're not. They want the same things you want. They, Rachel doesn't want to this, this moment to be the last moment she holds her baby. She does not want the strength to flow out of her body and to die in this place that they don't even know the name of, so to speak. She doesn't want it to end like this. She wants to hear that baby say the first words out of his mouth. And she hopes they're mama, but we all know the first words out of that baby's mouth were dada. Everybody knows that. You know how I know that? Because it is the one thing given to fathers who are ignored during Christmas and ignored on Father's Day, and they get nothing from nobody ever except cheap socks and ugly Christmas sweaters. But there is one one thing that God has given to you fathers, and that is this. Before that baby says, Mama, that baby is going to say, Dada. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, suckers. <laughs> she doesn't want to leave this life here with a new baby. She wants to see him crawl around the house, crawl around the tent. She wants to be there when he smiles at his first girl. <laughs> she wants to see him come to age, and she wants to hold his grandbabies. But life doesn't always work that way. And she feels the heaviness of this moment. She feels the sadness of it. And as her body fails her, and as her eyes grow dim, and as her peripheral vision focuses in to only be able to see what's right in front of her, she says to all the family, I guess we should name this boy Baroni. He is indeed the son of my sorrow. And there, in this little town that no one seems to know the name of, Rachel dies, and they bury her there. They procure a tomb for her. They mourn her. They bury her there. The name of this place is Bethlehem, where the boy is born. Jacob mourns his wife. He loved her like crazy. He loved her more than any sane man should ever love a woman. That's funny, and no one laughed. <laughs> he worked for that woman 14 years. That ain't nothing. I've been working for my wife for nearly 30. <laughs> he worked for that woman nearly 14. He loves her. He loves her so much they wrote a song about him. When a man loves a woman... 
He mourns her. He buries her. And he stands in this little town he never expected to know the name of. He never expected to know the name of this place. He always expected to pass through. He always expected to move on. But here in a place he had no idea he had a date with destiny at. He buries the wife of his heart. And he holds a boy who's been labeled the son of suffering. A moment comes when Jacob, reflecting upon all of this, having cried his tears, having held that baby as a way to give love to the wife he'll never hold until perhaps someday when redemption is given and the promises come, he holds that baby and he thinks to himself, is this the right thing to be done? Should we label a child by the pain of its parent? And something happens within him. Something snaps within him. And he says, gather around, family, gather around. I have something I want to say here today. And no one knows. Everyone's on their best behavior. You know how it is in a house of mourning. Everyone gathers quietly, respectively. And all they can see is that this man who has lost his beloved wife is holding the baby he has been given by her death. And he holds this little boy named Baroni. And he says, family, I have something I have to say here today. Um, It's not right for us to label this boy by the saddest moment in his mother's life. So I'm making an executive decision here today, and I want all of you to know it because it is changing today. We are not going to label this child by the sorrow of his mother. I am renaming this child, and today this is not Moroni. The name of this child is Benjamin. He is not the son of suffering. He's the son of his father's strength. Oh, what am I trying to say here today? It is in Bethlehem where tragedy struck. But God will not let the story end with the pain of yesterday. Some of you guys have lived your life overcoming something you went through in your past. Your father dealt with it. Your mother dealt with it. And you always just assume it was going to be a burden for you to carry here today. But I want you to know in Bethlehem, God will change your name. You are not limited by what you've overcome. Your past is not a ceiling above you. Let God lift you up before the ages and say this person is no longer the son of sorrow, but this son is a son of strength. Bethlehem, you have a problem. If you're not careful, you will come to believe that your past defines you. If you're not careful, you will come to believe that once you've been labeled one thing, that is the end of your story. But I want you to know, Bethlehem, your label is not the end of your story. Let your heavenly Father pronounce a new name in your life. You will not simply be a survivor. You will be an over. I'll tell you another story about Bethlehem. There was a family there, and times got hard. It's easy to think that in Bethlehem, since it is known as the house of bread, 
That is literally the meaning of the name Bethlehem. It's easy to think that in the house of bread, one should never be hungry. I, I would love to say that because I've spent my life in church, I've never hurt. But I would need to preach on honesty after I said that. Uh, I would like to say that because I've been raised in the church, I've never felt lonely. But that would just be ridiculous. You wouldn't believe it anyway. You'd shake your hand and say, Jesus, help that preacher. He's not doing well. I'd like to say that because I grew up in the house of bread, I've never looked at my bread basket and discovered it empty. When God is in your life, it doesn't mean you suddenly lose any sense of trouble. It's my experience that it's not so much that God keeps you from trouble, is that he repurposes the trouble. You see, without God, your pain means nothing. Your tears are for no point. But with God, he takes broken things and makes artwork. And so, this family is in the house of bread. And guess what is happening in the house of bread? There is a famine in the house of bread. And so they decide that they will... They're going to go look somewhere. They're going to go look somewhere for bread. And so they leave. This family leaves the house of bread. And they go seeking. And at the moment, things are better in Moab. And so they place roots in Moab. Uh, what is it about our human hearts that think we can outrun trouble? It's almost like we pack our bags and don't realize we packed our trouble in our bags. We get where we're going. We take out our drawers. You best travel with your own drawers. Don't be sharing drawers. That's ridiculous. You take out your drawers and what comes out with it? All your trouble. I should have preached your troubles in your drawers. But I didn't because my mom's here and she would be embarrassed if I did something so strange like that. I'm a dignified son. Moab's trouble. And it's, if you're going to go through trouble, you might as well be where God said you should be. Amen. Don't chase everything that comes through your life offering change. Pray about it. Not every opportunity is better because it has more money attached to it. Some of the most miserable people I know have plenty of money. And in Moab, trouble finds them there too. And uh, her husband dies in Moab. And then the first of her two sons die in Moab. And then her last son dies in Moab. And Naomi wakes up realizing that it's time to go home. It's just time to go home. She tried. She messed things up. She left the house of bread. Oh, it's so easy to only feel blessed when you can see God's blessing in your life. But God, help us not to judge him. God, forgive us when we do. God's good to you even when you can't put a finger on exactly how he is working in your life. But God knows what you need. Don't judge God. 
They left the house of bread. They went to Moab. She loses everything in Moab. She has a meeting with her daughters-in-law, and she says, I'm going home. One daughter-in-law weeps, hugs her, and goes to her people. The other daughter-in-law weeps, hugs her, won't let her go, and says, I'm going with you. And she says, but that's not your people. Your people are here, Ruth. There's no reason for you to go with me. Your people are here. And Ruth expresses perfect, uh, this is a type of spiritual commitment, not just the love of family. She says, where you go, I am going to go. And your people are going to be my people. And that's not all. Who you worship, that's who I am going to worship. So quit trying to talk me out of going with you, Naomi. I am going with you. Where are we going? I don't know where we're going. Moab is all I know. But if you say it's a place of goodness, if you say it's a place of blessing, then I'm going there with you. And Naomi says to Ruth, we're going back to the house of bread I should have never left the house of bread. I thought I knew when I was, it's time to go, but I, I, I'm going home now, Ruth says. You go ahead. I'm going with you. I'm going to help you on this journey. And so it is back to Bethlehem, this little town that it would be so easy for time to forget even today. The notoriety of Bethlehem is almost entirely due to the fact that the biblical tradition of the Judeo-Christian ethic are founded in this location. It is a tourist area for that reason. Other than that, it would be easy to fall from history's grip and be uh, forgotten. But here, these two women journey, and they come back to the house of bread. I want to take a moment and speak to you this truth. Don't ever decide whether or not you are somehow, for, don't ever, let me restate that in a more clear manner. Uh, it's easy for us to fall into the habit of deciding when we're blessed and when we're not blessed. Old times are good, times are not good. I, I want to suggest to you that like Naomi, you may not be a very good judge of how God is blessing you. You might money want money when what you really need is healing in your body. And then when God protects you, you don't even realize the goodness of God because you were deceived by a love for money when if you would have had money, you would have given every dime for healing. Don't judge God. Let God be the one who keeps you, the one who holds you, the one who embraces you. God, if you don't want me to have it, I don't need it. If you don't want to give it to me, I don't care to have it. You know the way that I take, and I trust you. I am in a house of blessing. It doesn't mean I won't have trouble. It doesn't mean there won't be struggle even in the church house. It doesn't mean you won't have your feelings hurt even in the church house. Let me flip the script. It won't mean you won't hurt someone's feelings even in the church house. But remember this. When God said, this is where you're supposed to be, then dearly beloved, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together as some people have done. But gather together more and more more as you see that day approaching. And she goes home and she brings this uh, Moabite daughter-in-law with her. 
and they don't know how they're going to make it in the house of bread. They don't know where they can start. And so uh, Naomi gives Ruth some really good advice. She says, why don't you find some people who already have plenty of bread, and why don't you stand on the edges and the corners of the field, because they won't take all of it, and a lot of times you can glean in those edges and corners of the field. Uh, this is good advice. The worst thing they could have done was isolate themselves. Oh, I wish I could get through to some people here today. Your vanity is what isol is, what is isol isolating you. You are not being led by the Spirit of the Lord. I'm glad you act religious, and I'm glad you have a favorite televangelist, but I'm here to tell you, it's not the presence of God that is isolating you from this house of worship. Go to the place where they have bread, and even if you only have enough confidence to sneak in and stand in the corner of the church house, you guys back here in the corner, I want you to know you're in the place of gleaners. You guys back here in the corner, I want you to know you're in the place of gleaners. Let me pick on you for a moment. You snuck in, and you thought no one would notice you, but here the preacher is preaching to you back in the place of gleaners. God bless you guys. Love you back there. I want you to know all I could do was kind of slip into the church house. I wasn't ready to run down here and dance around like I had the victory. I didn't have the victory, truth be known. I was barely making it, but I snuck in. I came in late so the pastor wouldn't even catch me. I know he stays out there to the first song, and I kind of counted it off till that second song had to be singing, and I looked, praise God, the pastor wasn't in a foyer, and I'm, I'm going to leave as soon as I can too because, you know, let me tell you something. You don't think you belong in the house of God, but God always has a corner just for you. Now, Boaz is in the field. He's a type of Christ, a type of a, a God watching the worshipers come. And he sees this young woman. She's not of the house of Israel. She is a Moabitess. He sees her in the corner of the field, and he says, hmm, you know, I think that I will instruct my various workers not just to let her take what's in the field, but to leave some handfuls on purpose. You see, you came in and sat in the corner of the church, and you thought you were going to be able to hide, but God had some handfuls on purpose for you in the house today, and God wants to bless you. And Ruth, what does Ruth say? She says, my goodness, a generous man. That's what I'm talking about. Every woman loves rich men. Don't act like you don't. I'm just having fun. I'm cutting up. You know, you know you married for love, and now you regret it. No, that's a joke. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm having fun. We're just cutting up. I love all you guys. So uh, he, she's like, whoa, a generous man. And she's like, hey. And Boaz is like, hey. And he's like, hey. And he's like, hey. And this is how another lesson emerges from the story of Bethlehem. Are you ready for this? Bethlehem is a house of bread, but it's not just accepting of people who have been uh, perfect little angels who've always done the right thing, who've always spoken the right way. Uh, even people who have lost their way, they can come back to the house of bread. This is not a house that only accepts you if you're good enough, if you've lost a lot, if you've made a lot of bad decisions and you don't know how Oh, it's all going to work out. I, I would suggest maybe you should go back to the house of bread. And I would suggest that you
you will discover that in Bethlehem, it's not just local folk. Uh, it's even backsliders who are accepted in Bethlehem. And the lesson goes further. I said the lesson goes further because it's not just the former people in good stead who are accepted in Bethlehem. Bethlehem's the kind of place where even if you don't belong in Bethlehem, if you'll come stand around the corners of the field, you might find that in Bethlehem there is a community that will open its heart to you. You might find that in Bethlehem there is a host of people who will look at you and say, can we adopt you around here? We're so glad to have you here. We want you to be a part of the family. We want you to join in this house of bread. Let me say to Bethlehem, if you're not careful, Bethlehem, uh, if you're not careful, Bethlehem, uh, you will begin to think of yourself as being uh, uh, without blessing. You'll think of yourself almost as being cursed because you've gone through a lot of trouble. And you'll say within your heart, I'm in a famine and I'm in the house of bread. Maybe I should look somewhere else. But Bethlehem, God says you are blessed. And when God says you are blessed, you need to let his word be the last word in your life. God said you are a house of bread. So it doesn't matter what your enemy says about you. I wish I could preach here today. I, I, I'm not going to preach by myself. Get your grandma finger out. You got a grandma finger? Lean over to the person beside you. Are you ready? I need you to help me preach. I, I'm just in the mood for some help. Wag your grandma finger at him and say, God said you're blessed. I don't care what anyone else says. Come on, tell him again. God says you're blessed. I don't care what anyone else says. God says you're blessed. I don't care what, it, oh my goodness. God said you're blessed. God said you're blessed. I don't care what your enemy says. God says you're blessed. I don't care what the enemy says. Bethlehem, if you're not careful, you will decide who you are. And God has already said who you are. You need to let God's word be the last word in your life. And even if you don't feel like you belong in a house of bread, let me remind you, Boaz is watching the corners of the church. And he's saying, who can I bless on purpose here today? I know you just wanted to sneak in and sneak out, but no, 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 no. Who can I bless on purpose? Let me give you one more story from Bethlehem. There was a prophet who came to Bethlehem, and he had felt uh, something that was both powerful and terrifying, and that was this. The anointing was moving on. Uh, God doesn't quickly give up on people. He doesn't. Uh, even less so in this day of grace when we no longer stand in our goodness, but we stand in Christ's goodness and we live as we do as an act of love, not a plan for salvation. This is grace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a redemptive covering. And when judgment comes, the death angel passes over us. So everything you do for God, everything you do for God is an act of love. It is you looking heavenward saying, I love you. That's why you have to get out of the idea of the preacher coming to your house and getting you. The preacher's not coming to your house and getting you. You might tell God you're not really trying hard. 
You might tell God you're not very thankful, but the preacher's not coming to your house to get you. Everything you do for the Lord is you looking heavenward saying, this is me loving you. I don't go there because this is me loving you. I don't talk that way because this is me loving you. I don't watch those kind of movies because this is me loving you. There's a change in the anointing. God doesn't quickly give up on people, but in this moment, he has had it with the anointing of the king of Israel. And the, king, the, the anointing is moving on. And so the prophet is directed where? Where is he directed? He's directed to Bethlehem. And it's here in Bethlehem that he goes to one of the town elders. And he says, Jesse, the Lord has directed me here. And the Lord has directed me to your house. Jesse, I need to see your sons, Jesse. Jesse, man of honor, a man of respect, a man of, of, of substance. He is uh, one of the leaders of the little village of Bethlehem, so easily forgotten by history. Here he is. And he sends messengers and gathers all his boys up and lines them up before the prophet. And here they all are. And i just be honest with you, all fathers are proud of their sons. I mean, there might be one or two that wishes their son came out a little different, but um, before you convince your dad that you absolutely have no sense, he was really, really proud of you. <laughs> That's what happened to me and my dad. He used to love me and everything, and then I acted out, and now it's problematic. No, just kidding. Having fun. Uh, Jesse's proud of his boys. His boy's standing there before the prophet, and he's... He's just stinking proud of them boys. He's like, look at them muscles. If you had muscles like that, you would sell yours at a pawn shop. If, 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 you, had a, if you had arms like that, you would donate yours to the Goodwill. <laughs> look at them boys. And the prophet, directed by God, stands before the boys. And he does what all of us do. All of us do. He looks at the outward appearance, and in spite of the Bible specifically making a point out of this, let me just be honest with you, it's hard. It's hard. I, I can't know your heart. It's worse than that. I, I struggle to know my own heart. Yeah. And so I look at how you look, and if you look like an idiot, I think you're an idiot, and then I have to repent, because <laughs> that's not the way to do it. Yeah. That's me being honest, okay? Is that too heavy for you? I love you. All right? The prophet is like, oh, this would be a fine king. Look at him. Look at the muscles on him. All the girls in the village are like, hey, look at that. Praise God. He needs Jesus. That's what they're like. And the spirit slows the prophet's presumption. I'm looking for something maybe you're not looking for. He goes to the next son, the next son, the next son, the next son, the next son. Jesse's starting to get worried. I mean, if it was one of them, they had a bad heart. If it's all of them, they had a bad dad. See, at some point, you have to look here. Uh, science has proven that one out of three people can be considered weird by most society standards. So I have something for you to do. Look at the person on your left. And look at the person on your right. And if they both look normal, you're the weirdo. (laughs) 
thank God I have a weirdo right over here. <laughs> Love you, Angie. You're awesome. <laughs> so, uh, do you have any other sons? And Jesse, Jesse is, uh, I'm sure, I'm trying to empathize with him. I try to put myself in his shoes. And I'm telling you what, uh, he is not comfortable on the inside. He, he's just not. I mean, you're already a nervous wreck with your kids. You're afraid they're going to do something and they're going to show how they really act, not how you taught them to pretend to act. And he's a nervous wreck. And he's sitting around, oh, my God. Oh, oh. And he thinks, uh, yes, I do, but he's just tending the sheep. And Samuel, <laughs> Samuel says, let me, you know what, I, I, we're going to all learn a lesson here today, and we're going to do it like this. We're all going to stand right here, and we're not sitting down until whatever young lad is tending the sheep is brought here to stand in front of me. And can you imagine how awkward it was? All the brothers are standing there looking at each other. I know what's wrong with you. I just don't know what was wrong with me. I would have been a great king. You're the loser with a bad attitude. I would have done awesome. You, it's all, and, 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 you know, and the mom, mom is fluttering around, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, what have we done? I blame Jesse. It's all on Jesse. I've, I've been trying to raise that man for years, and now it's going in his boys, and about that time, David comes trotting up, just a young lad, just a whippersnapper. Not a, he still smells like sheep. God always anoints people who smell like sheep, but anyway, moving along, that's another Bible study for leaders. And, uh, you can't, you can, you're not anointed when you hide from people in need. And David smells like sheep. And so here he is. What, 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 love of God, what's going on? What did I do this time? All younger brothers live in fear of thinking what they've done wrong this time. And he stands here and uh, the prophet needs no more consideration and he opens that horn of oil that's in his hand and he brings that boy closer and in the presence of his brethren before his parents he ups that horn of oil over this boy's head and the holy anointing oil of God flows down over the locks of David David doesn't have a clue what's going on no one explained anything to him all he knows at this moment is that God chose him he does he doesn't know why. He doesn't know how. He's not the strongest. When he wrestles with his brothers, they all beat him, but God chose him. His brothers all think they're smarter than him, but God chose him. What's going on? You are anointed to be king over this land. You are anointed to be king over Israel, over Judah. Uh, Bethlehem, you have a problem, Bethlehem. Uh, you are well we're aware of how insignificant you are among the cities. And if there was a Messiah who was going to be born, it's easy to think that there's a better place for uh, a Messiah to be born than in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler over Israel. The one to be ruler in Israel. Perhaps you think that the Messiah should be born in some place more notable than Bethlehem. Perhaps you would place him in a capital somewhere, in the palace of a king. Maybe you think he would best fit in the ornate 
confines of a golden temple. Perhaps you think that's the place. Maybe you would survey the Holy Land and you would find the high hill of Bashan and you would say, here on this hill is where a king should be born. Or maybe maybe you would go to a royal, a royal peak uh, known as Hebron and you would say, this is the place. It is here that a Messiah should be born. And you would say, this is the place. But I want you to know God did not choose a temple in Jerusalem and God did not choose uh, the high hill of Bashan and God was not satisfied nor impressed with the Mount of Hebron. He chose Bethlehem and Bethlehem can sit shocked in the reality of divine favor and wonder how this happened or why it happened. But I've come to tell this to all those Bethlehemites who will hear, hear me. Why God chose you is not for you to know. But what is for you to know is this truth. That you need to get down in your soul. And that is this. God chose me. I said God chose me. Don't judge your potential based on where you are now. Let God be the judge of your potential. Look at young David. No one sees in him what God sees in him. They think he's good for keeping sheep. And when he brings food to his brethren on the battlefield where where Goliath mocks the armies of God, they think it's a joke. And they make a joke out of David. No one can see the potential that exists in David. Nobody is impressed by Bethlehem, not even the people of Judah, but God chose Bethlehem. So you need to quit telling Bethlehem what it can be and what it cannot be. Your limits of the moment will not always be your limits and your past that you have survived will not always be your limits. Uh, Today, you're keeping sheep, but a day may come where God raises up a sword in your hand. A day may come where God fills you with his anointing purpose. A day may come where you lead God's people. God will use everything you're going through to raise you up. The Bible says in the New Testament, Acts 13, I'm done, musicians, you can come. This is how King David, one of the ways King David gets in the New Testament. Are you ready for this? Chapter 13, verse number 22. God raised up unto them David to be their king. I want to say that again because I think maybe it just slipped by us. God raised up unto them David to be their king. God chose David and God raised David up. God chose Bethlehem. Yes, it's easy to talk yourself out of how you have any influence. It's easy to low rate your potential. But I've come to tell you today, God is raising something up in you. God is raising something up in your gifts, in your place. Oh, Bethlehem, don't let your past be your limits. God chose you. God's invested in you. All of these lessons that I've given you from the three stories of Bethlehem are all summed up when Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
because he does with our hearts and souls exactly the very things that are demonstrated in the three stories of Bethlehem I have told you he does it with all of us he works in us he chooses us he invests in us he doesn't let our past limit us though we are far away he doesn't let the reality of the stranger keep us from being adopted into his family he does in us everything shown in the stories of Bethlehem and God raises up his people and I want to convince someone here today you are chosen by God and God is raising you up and you need to live as though your prayer matters and you need to live as though your anointing matters and you need to live as though this is true though you are small though you are easily lost among the thousands though you are easily easily forgotten by the uh, glitterati <laughs> the intelligentsia the one percent in spite of that status in your heart the king has been born and in your life in your life everything has changed because Christ was born in Bethlehem our ushers are coming right now to begin to serve you today is uh, communion to end our seven days of prayer and fasting uh, I hope you were able to find time and make place for this week of spiritual discipline I want to encourage any of you who maybe feel like you did not have a, a great passion week uh, I've talked to some people and I'll be the first to admit this to you there are some seasons of your life uh, when times of prayer and fasting can be uh, easy almost enjoyable uh, and then there's many seasons of your life where you have to fight you have to fight you have to want it you have to desire it you have to work for it and I want to tell you this, that your feelings are often exactly wrong. Uh, when you think it was good and easy, uh, that's not when it mattered the most. Oftentimes when you feel like you struggled, that was when it mattered the most. And so I don't want anyone to try to judge on how good of a, uh, a week of prayer and fasting they had. I want you to let it be what it is. And today uh, we stand we, 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 we gather together in this house and we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, this is one of our forms of worship. It is a sacrament that all of us participate in uh, as a way of giving honor and glory to God. While the ushers are finishing serving you, um, I'm going to let you have a moment to reflect and repent. Reflect and repent. This is appropriate before we take the Lord's Supper together. So let's do that right now. Just, just take a moment. Uh, reflect and let repentance work in your heart and in your life right now. Lord Jesus, we're praying for a spiritual washing of all our spirits and souls. We're praying for mercy to cover every blemish of our mind and spirit. Cleanse us, Lord Jesus, that we might please you with our lives, that we might serve you with the days we are given. We want to say thank you for your mercy shed abroad in our hearts and in our lives.
We want to say thank you for your blessing. Cleanse us by your mighty power and by your spirit. And let the church say amen. I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I'm reading at verse number 23. This is Paul's specific instruction in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On your, on your uh, serving, uh, there is a top clear plastic layer. I'd, I'd like you to peel that back first. And take the wafer, the unleavened wafer that is there. And now in remembrance of God's broken body offered for us that our bodies might be made whole and have eternal life. We partake of this Lord's Supper and we say thank you, Lord Jesus, for your broken body. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Peel back the foil covering on your cup and you may partake of the fruit of the vine. Hallelujah, hallelujah. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, he comes. Stand with me all across this house. Lift your hands in this place. And in your own way, your own words, your own personality, would you tell God, thank you for your redemptive work in my heart and life. Lord Jesus, thank you for washing my sins away. Thank you for cleansing me from all the iniquity of the flesh. Thank you for giving me chance after chance after chance. You didn't have to love me, but you did. You didn't have to include me, but you did. You didn't have to be merciful for me, with me, but you were. And I praise you today because there's none like you. There's none like you. I'm going to open this altar up. Those who will come to the front, I invite you to do so. But wherever you are in this house, I'd like you to find some people near you. If you're with your family, you're already doing life with them. You already have each other's germs already. I'd like you to form a prayer group with them. If you're sitting near friends and you guys already hang out, would you reach out to them? Uh, you're not trying to be take authority over them or be super spiritual. That's not what we do in prayer. Uh, but just find somebody. Find some prayer groups. Those of you comfortable, step out. Come to the front. We are an altar church. Uh, but wherever you are, whoever you're around, our worship team is going to lead us into worship. I want you to lift your heart, focus your mind, speak your prayer. Let it be an offering unto God at this moment.
Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.